to let you know, many of you already know, but one of our dear saints uh, passed away late on Friday night and, and entered glory. At 94 years old, uh, Miss Finley, Ellen Finley, passed away. And she was one of the kind of folks, uh, I, I didn't get to know her well. Um, I visited her several times, and every time I visited her, I was blessed. She was such a, uh, an incredible woman of, of uh, uh, love for the Lord and love for others. But what she left behind was story after story of how she had faithfully served the Lord and loved people in this church. And so I can't help but believe that when she stood there before the Lord Jesus, she heard those very words. I, I believe that. Well done. What a powerful life. Her services will be Wednesday at 1 o'clock, so wanted to let you know that. Miss um, Finley loved the Lord, and she served others, and she invested her life into the local church. She believed in serving the Lord through the church and, and, uh, and again, left the legacy in that regard. And, and I want to I tell some of you and share with some of you an opportunity that, that's before you. Um, you see these little ones sitting here. Occasionally, we, we hear them cry, which is a good sound to hear in a church. And we see kids running around. Those kiddos need to see men and women who love Jesus with all their heart and who are committed to set a godly example. And not only that, but men and women who are committed to sacrifice their own desires, their own schedules, their own ease with a willingness to say, you know what, I'm going to invest in the next generation. And there are some of you here today that I believe God is calling. I believe God is saying to you, I want you to invest in the next generation. And so this morning, I, I want to I ask you to think about that and pray about that. We're going to be recruiting teachers soon. We don't want warm bodies. We want people who feel called by God to pour their lives into these little ones and who one day, when your funeral comes, there'll be a train of people who will say, that man lived it, and he discipled me and poured into me. That dear woman meant every word she said. Oh, that's worth our sacrifice. And won't it be worth our sacrifice when we stand before the Lord Jesus and we hear him say, well done, as I believe Miss Finley indeed did. We have one other joyful occasion that I want to mention this morning briefly. Today, and I'm probably going to get in a lot of trouble, but today is Charles Rain's 94th birthday. Happy birthday, Mr. Rain. Yeah. Thank you, sir. What, a, what a, another great example of a couple who are committed to the Lord and to the church. What a blessing. One of the great things about being a part of a church family, the young and, and, and the more mature, what a blessing to all be a family together. Well, let's pray as we begin this sermon. Oh, Lord, as we look at a passage of Scripture, it's critically important. It has consequences that are grave, yes, eternal. Please enable me to preach your word faithfully and clearly. I pray that not a word of my own would come, Father, but only your words. Would you open our hearts to hear, to, to be shaped and changed by your word? Would you protect us from the schemes and the wiles of the devil? We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, on October 30th, 2012, Police responded to the report of a dead body at Lakeview or Longview Lake Picnic Shelter 
in Kansas City, Missouri. A handwritten suicide note was there and an empty 200-count bottle of acetaminophen PM. It was the body of Bethany Deaton. She had recently finished her nursing degree, and, and in August she had been married. She had gone to school at Southwestern University in Georgetown, Texas, and was a part of an uh, IHOP worship group, an International House of Prayer worship group. In fact, around 20 or so members of that group at, at Southwestern University moved up to Kansas City because that's where the headquarters for the International House of Prayer is located. The group's spiritual leader, Tyler Deaton, was a self-proclaimed apostle, and he had a lot of influence o- over group members. Tyler would receive direct prophecies from God, direct words from God, and even regarding things like who the group members could date. And, and, and some of his prophecies went into to even perverse areas. When he was in college, Deaton said in July of 2007 that God had called them to, to be in this group that he would be the leader of. God had given him that message. And so they were supposed to, to become a part of this group. And then later, uh, in December of uh, 2007, he would go up to Kansas City to an International House of Prayer uh, meeting. And, and this is what he shared with group members after attending that, that conference. Friends, I kid you not, when I say that I feel God has transformed me more in that short period of time than I have been so far in my life. And his friends believed him. They believed that he had a special anointing from God, and they followed him. Now, after the Deatons were married, Bethany was very troubled, and she confided in some very close friends that Tyler was extremely controlling. They had been married only a couple months when Bethany was admitted into a hospital because she was suicidal. She told medical staff That because she was damned and could not attain salvation, she needed to end her own life. And five days later, Bethany would do just that. Now, after her death, reports of of Tyler's manipulation of group members began to surface. One of the core teachings of the leadership of the International House of Prayer is that God is raising up modern-day prophets and modern-day apostles who are able to speak the very message of God. So when they speak, it's as if God himself has spoken. They have great spiritual authority. So Tyler Deaton, this self-proclaimed apostle, controlled and manipulated these young adults. And here we see the heartbreaking suicide of a 27-year-old woman. It seems fair to say that Bethany's suicide is directly linked to her involvement with this spiritually abusive IHOP group and her marriage to its spiritual leader, Tyler Deaton. So you see, false teaching can have life and death consequences. How do we determine what is a true and a false prophet? Well, that's exactly what we're going to think together about this morning as we look at the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. In this passage... Of Scripture, Jesus is finishing up the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, he taught his followers what it meant to be a true follower of his. And so he concludes the sermon by issuing a series of four warnings. Last week we looked at the first. He said, Enter through the narrow gate that has come to salvation only through me. Today he says, Beware of false prophets. Jesus teaches that everyone who claims to be his teacher isn't necessarily so. 
Let's look together at Matthew 7, beginning in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. In this text, Jesus urges his disciples to evaluate the life and teachings of Christian leaders. He urges his disciples to evaluate the life and teachings of Christian leaders. If you look there in verse 15, Jesus begins by saying, beware of false prophets. Well, what's a prophet? A prophet is someone who says, I'm speaking for God. I'm speaking the words of God. And when I stand up and I preach the word, in a sense, I am I'm acting in a role like that. Now, to the degree that I'm faithful to the scriptures, then, then it is a word from God. To the degree that I deviate, then it's not a word from God. So he says, beware of, of false prophets. They're going to show up. That they're going to come around. That's exactly what he's saying. Now, we know in the Old Testament there was a history of false prophets among the people of Israel. The people of Israel would be living in sin, living however they wanted, rejecting all that God said, and there'd be false prophets who would stand up and go, you're just fine. You're doing great. God's, God's with you. He's pleased with you. And, and in Jeremiah 6.10, or 6.14, pardon me, the Lord calls them out. They, or these false prophets, have healed the wound of my people lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. In other words, these false prophets were telling the people, everything's fine, it's all good, no worries. And the Lord says, these prophets are false. They're false, they're not real. And in describing the people earlier in chapter 6 and verse 10, uh, they're described as having no regard for God's word. The word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. They didn't care what the word of God said. So these false prophets came in the Old Testament, and Jesus makes it clear that in New Testament times, they will continue to come. They will continue to come. So he says, watch out, beware, they're they're coming, they're going to come at you. Notice what it says in verse 15, they come to you. They place themselves in the midst of God's people. This is really important. The false prophets aren't out there. This passage tells us that they're here. If we're not careful, they, they're looking for a church or a, a Christian people that they can kind of begin to work their, their way into. That's exactly what Jesus says. They'll come to you. And they come with a pitchfork, dressed as Satan. No, not at all. They come like a sheep. Well, what's a sheep? Uh, here, the sheep are pictured as the true followers of Christ. They come looking like everyone else. They don't come as a wolf growling and and starting all sorts of trouble. No, they look like the nice, sweet, kind people. That's exactly what Jesus says. They they look like you. They they try to disguise themselves and and look like you. And not only that, they're going to use the same words you use. That's one of the keys to to describe. Uh, disguising themselves. They're going to talk about Jesus and the gospel and faith. They're going to talk about all of those kinds of words. And if you're not careful, it's going to sound really good. They're using the same words. The problem is they're using a different dictionary. They're defining the words differently. And so he says they're going to come in 
They're going to look like you. They're going to seem pious. They're going to seem holy and nice and kind. They're dressed as a sheep. You, you understand. They want to hide their identity, who they really are. They don't really want people to recognize or to see, at least not at first. They're almost indistinguishable from, from true followers. Notice here that Jesus is speaking to a community of disciples. If you look in the Greek at verse 15, you're going to see the word you there, if we translate it into Texan, is y'all. It's y'all. So Jesus is speaking to the, to the community of his disciples, and it's as if he's saying to his disciples, this is in the days before the church had started, as Jesus was, was founding sort of a core group that would become the church. He basically says, y'all have responsibility to protect against false teachers. There's a sense in which the community is responsible. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But these false prophets look innocent enough, but on the inside, their motives are insidious. They're here to pick sheep off one by one like ravenous wolves. They come and they look for opportunity. Oh, there's, there's an opportunity. They kind of pull that person in, kind of pull that person along. They look for another. They look for another I mean, it seems so real. It seems so good. It seems so right. In verse 16, look there. Jesus says that you'll recognize them. There's a way to see who the false prophets are. Jesus says that. You can recognize them, he says, by their fruits. So they may not be immediately obvious, but if you begin to evaluate what they're teaching and how they're living, eventually the truth will begin to trickle out, if you will. The truth will begin to surface. So you look at the fruits of their lives, Jesus says. Well, what, what does he mean by fruits in this context? Look at the totality of their life. What do they say? What are they teaching? How do they live? All of these kinds of things can give hints. It could be that, that a person seems to live fairly moral, but their teaching is false. And often false teaching has a way of slipping into immorality as well, but, but not always, perhaps. So he says, look at how they live, look at what they teach, look at how they talk. A prophet can fake it for a while, but if you examine and evaluate, eventually the fruit reveals who they really are. Often you see a sense of divisiveness in, in false prophets. There's a sense in which they kind of rise up in the midst of a Christian group. They begin to pick people off one by one, and they begin to kind of make their own little following, kind of a, a sense of, of, of uh, just sort of dividing folks up. Uh, a sense of uh, uh, th- their group, if you will. And so Jesus says that these false prophets are recognizable. You, you can tell who they are. If you'll notice, he says, are thorn bushes going to grow grapes? Now there is a buckthorn bush that produces berries that look similar to grapes, and from a distance you might mistake them. And perhaps you could mistake a, a thistle uh, bloom from a distance, maybe, for, for a fig tree bloom. But Jesus says when you start looking at it, you're going to see what it really is. It, it's going to become clear. In verse 17, look there. Jesus says, every healthy tree bears good fruit. So he begins to make a comparison between healthy trees and diseased trees. He says the healthy tree is going gonna, is gonna to bear good fruit. What does this mean? A true teacher, a true prophet of God, his life and teaching is going to reveal a genuine love for God and a com- and a commitment to the word of God, a clear commitment to the word of God. A false prophet, on the other hand, his life is going to be revealed by by bad fruit. What are you going to see? You're going to see teachings contrary to Scripture. You're going to see teachings that that don't line up with the word of God. You're going to see 
perhaps sinfulness that's kind of hidden, that's kind of undercover. Those kinds of things begin to show up and help you know, hey, this is not the real thing. This is not it. In verse 18, he restates the very same truth the other way. In verse 18, Jesus says, a healthy tree cannot bear good cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree good fruit. So Jesus basically uh, uh, suggests that the healthy tree isn't going to produce false teaching, that a healthy tree isn't going to produce an unrepentant lifestyle. So a true teacher is a true teacher. Is it possible for a true teacher to sin and mess up? Of course, but a true teacher is repenting, and they're trying to change, and by God's grace, they're walking more and more like Christ. Uh, you think of a true teacher. A true teacher is committed to the word of God. And the core, key teachings of Christianity, a true teacher is absolutely committed to. The the things that the church has understood for 2,000 years, they're committed to orthodox Christianity. But a false teacher is happy to drift and to explore and find novel understandings and new interpretations, things that are exciting that people haven't thought of before. Yeah, they, after all, they're not here to be faithful to the book. They're here to pull people away. And so, the true teacher's not going to produce that kind of bad fruit. True teacher mess up. Sometimes, sure, all of us sin. But there's going to be repentance. There's going to be a commitment to the word. And a disease tree ultimately can't bear fruit that's truly good. That is to say, they're not going to produce the kind of life and teaching that is Faithful to the scriptures. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, what's the destination of these false teachers? He says, their destination is judgment. You see, God's judgment is inescapable for for those who seek to lead God's people astray. Now, in verse 20, Jesus echoes what he's already said in, in verse 16. He says, you can recognize them. You can know who they are. Just look at their fruits. Look at their lives, look at their attitudes, look at their words, look at their teachings. Look at all those things. So what is Jesus saying? Christian teachers, their lives and their words ought to be evaluated. What is the fruit that is produced? Does this teacher's lifestyle line up with the word? Or do you see something that's awry, something that's not quite right? Do you see an arrogance there that that gives you a hint that the fruit of the Spirit is not apparent. The Spirit's not at work in in that person's heart. Do you see a love of money and a greed? Do you see hints of immorality here or there? Do you see deception? Because there's a sense in which false teachers are always seeking to be deceptive, trying to look like sheep, trying to look like uh, the average church member. Um, And so here you see A teacher's lifestyle has got to line up with the Word of God. Does this teacher's words line up with Scripture? Or again, have they discovered some enlightened understanding for this passage? Some enlightened understanding that veers off the path of Christian orthodoxy, that veers off the path of faithful Christian teaching. So let's think through how this applies in our lives today. First, be on guard for false teachers. Be on guard for false teachers. It's exactly what Jesus says. Examine the lives of Christian leaders. Be careful. False prophets come as sheep, not wolves. Second, be aware of popular false teachings in the church and beyond. In other words, be knowledgeable of kind of what's going on, of what you might run across out there. First, I want to visit with you briefly 
uh, about liberal Protestantism. Now, at the turn of the 20th century, this is, this is not new. This has been going on for well over 100 years in, in our own country. But in liberal Protestantism, there's a sense in which oh, the truths of Christianity are embarrassing. When you say that Jesus is the only way to heaven, and when you say that there's a hell, and when you say that God created everything, I mean, those kinds of truths are, well, they're, they make you sound foolish out there. When you're speaking to the academy or to the elite, you're a fool if you talk like that. And so what Protestant liberalism did is it sought to kind of start cutting the rough edges off of Christianity. Ooh, that, that would sound terrible out there. Let's see if we can come up with a way to play gymnastics with the text and get, get rid of that. Let's cut it out. Let's get the eraser out. Let's, let's get rid of it. And so that's what Protestant liberalism has done, or liberal Protestantism has done. There's an apologetic impulse. There's a sense in which they're saying, listen, if we don't get this Christianity thing shaped up for a new generation, it's going to disappear because the folks are not going to accept that Jesus is the only way to salvation. They're not going to accept that. The folks are not going to accept what the Bible says about marriage and about gender. They're not going to accept that. So we've got to clean it up. We gotta we gotta clean it up and make it what it needs to be so that the people will like it. And that's what liberal Protestantism has sought to do. You've seen it in the mainline denominations, who one doctrine after another doctrine have ripped pages and pages and pages out of the scriptures. Because they wanted to make Christianity good for the people, for the culture around them. And so what you see is a universalism. They say, you don't need Jesus to be saved. Everybody's saved. So the gospel's gone, and what's left? Well, the social gospel is left. Let's be nice to people. That part of the Bible they keep. The part about loving others they keep. The other parts, you're not going to hear much about those parts except attempts to, to explain them away. The current project of liberal Protestantism, Protestantism is this, to redefine biblical teachings about male and female about marriage and sexuality to make sure that our culture says, you guys are on the right track. That's the goal. The Church of England, for example, recently passed a motion to create a liturgy or a worship service to celebrate the transition of a a transgender person. Carl Truman, a church historian, commented on this. Let me read his comments. Truman said, by now, experience should have taught even the moderately self-aware that where religion is concerned, cultural relevance is a cruel mistress, always promising the church a place at the table, but never quite delivering. Alas, self-awareness has never been the strong suit of those liberal Protestants who have perfected the art of always being belatedly in support of whatever nonsense the sexual revolution is now declaring a self-evident truth. So in the end, while liberal Protestantism uses Christian words... Same words, uses Christian themes, same ideas. It's anything but historic Christianity. The gospel is gone. See, genuine Christianity is based upon a firm conviction to the word of God. Liberal Protestantism is based upon the ever-changing opinions of people and emotions of people. Now, J. Gresham Machen, at the turn of the the 20th century or early in the 20th century spoke of liberal Protestantism. He said this, in trying to remove from Christianity everything that could possibly be objected to in the name of science, in trying to bribe off the enemy by those concessions, 
which the enemy most desires, the apologist or the one trying to, to make the faith relevant and, 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 and still uh, uh, there, has really abandoned what he started out to defend. So what's Machen say? Machen says, look, the, the liberal Protestants said, you know what, you don't like us to say that God created. You don't like us to reject evolution. Okay, we'll just say evolution's true. The uh, liberal Protestantism said, you don't like us to say Jesus the only way. Okay, we'll take that out. You, everybody's saved. And he basically says, you started out to defend the Christian faith, but in the end, you lost it in the process of, quote, defending it. It's, it's gone. In our own denomination, in the Southern Baptist Convention, a professor back at Southern Seminary, he taught at Southern for a while, and he taught at Midwestern for a while. This was in the mid-20th century, back when many of our institutions had, had drifted to the left and had drifted away from a, a trust in Scripture. Uh, he wrote a book called The Message of Genesis in the early 1960s. And in this book, he said, Adam and Eve weren't real people. And he, he went through and changed a, a lot of what we understand Genesis to say. It was classic uh, liberal Protestantism. Now later, uh, Professor Elliot would reflect on the fact that he lost his job in, in the midst of all of this. And he would say, you know what? Many of the other professors who were teaching believed exactly like I believed but they wouldn't say it. And so this is a quote from Eliot. Eliot said, Double speak has become an insidious disease within Southern Baptist life. Through the years, the program at Southern Seminary has acquainted students with the best and current research in the given fields of study. However, professors and students learn to couch their beliefs in acceptable terminology and in holy jargon so that although thinking one thing the speaker calculated so as to cause the hearer to affirm something else. So what was this double speak? It was the ability to say, okay, I'm thinking this, but I'm going to communicate it so kind of carefully that the folks out there are going to think I'm affirming the Bible and the truthfulness of Christianity, what's always been understood to be historic Christianity. But in the end, they were just playing games with words. And so Elliot continued, one of the serious difficulties for me personally during the Genesis controversy was a running debate with a particular Southern professor who constantly counseled me to use the double speak technique. When the difficulties came, he said he believed the same thing on these issues as I did, but I got into trouble because I did not know how to communicate. What he meant was that I didn't know how to do double speak. My contention was that I got into trouble because I sought to communicate an unambiguous message. So we need to be careful of liberal Protestantism as it seeks to redefine the truths of the gospel. And therefore, in the process, has often lost the gospel. Now, let's think briefly together about the prosperity gospel. Now, the prosperity gospel is sometimes called name it, claim it, health, wealth. This is the idea that if you speak words, you can, you can make things happen by speaking words. You can make things happen by your thoughts. If you have enough faith, they say, then God has to act. He has to do whatever you want him to do. Joyce Meyer boldly claimed, claims that God made her rich. She told her audience, if you stay in your faith, you're going to get paid. I am now living in my reward. In fact, her ministry takes in nearly $100 million a year. Joyce Meyer believes that people can speak things into existence. It says, and Meyer says this, it says in Romans 14, 17, that we have a God who gives life to the dead and he calls things that be not 
as though they already existed. If there's something in your way, speak to it. So the idea is that by your words, you can make things happen. It's not here. God speaks, and yes, <laughs> the world was created, but I'm not God, and you're not either, and she's not either. Kenneth Hagin, a pioneer in the movement, made the claim, I believe that it is the plan of God our Father that no believer should ever be sick. It is not, I state boldly, it is not the will of my Father that we should suffer with cancer and other dread diseases. It is God's will that we should be healed. So the, the health wealth movement teaches that everyone should always be healed. It's always God's will for someone to be healed. And if they're not healed, it's because there was not enough faith. Well, then what happens when your loved one dies? Well, sister, your husband wouldn't have died if you just had enough faith. Hey, that kind of stuff happens. That kind of stuff is said. I, I've seen it. You see, this is, an, this is a teaching that's dangerous. It destroys people's faith. It destroys people's life. Another word faith teacher, Rod Parsley, teaches that God's will is to give luxurious homes and cars. Why not jump in, right? Some of you better get ready to drive around in neighborhoods where you never thought you'd be able to afford to live. Some of you better go down to that Lexus and Mercedes dealership and just sit down in one of those things with that leather all over it. And when they say, what are you doing? Just say, well, I'm just feeling out what my father is going to give me. How's he going to give it to you? Because I'm going to be obedient. I heard a word from the man of God, Parsley. And when I obey that word, it unleashes that anointing into my life. And I'm, I'm on my way to houses I didn't build full of good things I didn't have to buy. Who doesn't want a part of that message? The problem is they're using words of faith, but they're defining them differently. It's unfaithful to the book. I mentioned earlier the International House of Prayer. That's associated with the New Apostolic Reformation. And this is a group of, it's a, a loosely associated group that basically believes that there are modern day prophets and modern day apostles who can speak the very word of God. And if you're following a guy who thinks he is a modern day apostle and he says, you better do this, you believe that's a word from God. It's crazy. It's dangerous. It affects people's lives. It affects people for eternity. Let's briefly mention uh, some of the cults. The, one of the ways that you can tell cults from, from biblical Christianity is by asking the question, who do they say that Jesus is? There's a lot of ways you can know, but that's one of the core questions. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because the cults always change the definition of Jesus. Uh, another thing that you can ask is, how do they say a person is saved? Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus was originally Michael the archangel the first creation of God. What, are, what, are, what is Christianity? What does the Bible teach about Jesus? Well, the Bible teaches that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity who has always existed. Not that he was created and first Michael the archangel before he came to earth. Mormonism teaches that Jesus was God's firstborn son, a, a spirit brother of Lucifer. Um, Gordon Hinckley, the former president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, or, or Mormon, said, as a church, we have critics, many of them. They say we do not believe in the traditional Christ of Christianity. There is some substance to what they say. That's exactly what their president said. Christian science, for example, says that sin and sickness are errors of understanding in the divine mind, and they have no true basis in reality. Jesus is the way shower. He didn't die on the cross. He wasn't God in the flesh, but he shows the way. Now, they're using the same words as we do, but they have a completely different definition. Friends, we must be very careful. How do you keep yourself 
from being tricked. Well, third, become a diligent student of the Bible. Become a diligent student of the Bible. Don't trust a teacher, a preacher, a counselor, a blog, a book, just because the person or the book is allegedly Christian. Look at what they say and compare it to the Word. When I stand before you to preach, look at what I say. Compare it to the Word. It's got to be faithful to the book. Fourth, pastors have a responsibility to protect against false teachers. This is one of the reasons that God intended for followers not to just be Christians kind of out there, kind of drifting in a church every now and then, but not really planning their lives. But, but we're going to see here that one of the reasons that God puts us in a church is because it's a way that he protects us from false teaching. Pastors have a responsibility to protect against false teachers. Titus 1.9 says that, a, that an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. When Paul was speaking with the elders or the pastors at Ephesus in Acts 20, Verse 28, he said this, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. So what's Paul saying? Paul's saying just exactly what Jesus said, that wolves are going to come to try to destroy and twist the truths of God. And Paul said to these pastors or these elders at Ephesus, you guard and protect the congregation against that. But guess what? It's possible that I could be an error. It's possible that, a, that another teacher could be an error. So fifth, members have the ultimate responsibility for proper doctrine. Scripture says that if I get up and I teach something that's false, then the membership of this church ought to get together and say, you know what, brother, you're not going to stand in our pulpit again. You can look in Galatians 1.6 uh, and following, and I won't take the time to read it this morning, but, but take a look at it on your own and, and you'll see that. I want to add, and some of you are saying, please don't, but I want to add a freebie. Number six, even though it's not in your bulletin, find a Bible-believing church. Because the word church is on the sign doesn't mean that it's a church. Sometimes folks will say to me, well, we, we, or, or they'll say, we would go to this church or that church, but we love the music at this church. The music was just exactly what we like. And I'm sympathetic to that. I mean, I like certain kinds of music more than I do other types of music. But I always want to say, brother, are you sure? that the music's more important than the word? Are you sure that the music should trump faithful doctrine, faithfulness to the scriptures? Because I'm not. Or sometimes folks will say, well, they had this program I liked and that program I liked and kind of wanted this and wanted that and they just had a good mix of, of, what, I, of what our family wanted. Well, that's good and I get that, I do. But friends, what better drive us more than any of those things is does this church believe the word of God? Why? Because the wolves come in sheep's clothing. These are the words of Jesus. They're not mine. They're the words of the Lord himself. So this morning we began by focusing on the tragic suicide of Bethany Deaton and in her involvement with a spiritually oppressive group characterized by false teachings and a false apostle. 
we noted that the consequences of false teaching can truly be life or death. But really, that's not all. If we truly believe the word of God, then the consequences of false teaching aren't simply life and death here, possibly. But ultimately, they're the difference between eternal life and death. Between whether a person comes to know Jesus and be saved and and go to heaven or whether a person is separated from him for all eternity. Do you see how serious this is? Brothers and sisters, we must be committed to the word of God. We must. So learn God's word. And I sometimes will hear believers say, well, I don't really want to get into all that. I just kind of want to know, you know, John 3, 16. That's good for me. That's enough for me. No, it's not. We need to learn the word. We'll love God more when we know more about him, when we understand more about him. We'll be protected when we know more about him. So learn the word and get into a faithful Bible-believing church. Now, all this matters because the gospel matters. I know there are folks here today who have not yet come to know Jesus, gone to church some, maybe tried to be a good person, but you haven't yet said to the Lord Jesus, I'm coming to you in faith. I want to be born again. I want to turn from my sin and believe in you. Jesus, I believe you, you came to this earth and lived the perfect life that you were buried, that you were raised from the dead, and I want to follow you. And if you're here today and you've never believed in Jesus, the most important decision that you could ever make in your whole life, I'll be up here at the front. In just a moment, we begin to sing. I would invite you to come forward. I'd love to visit with you more. Brother Ralph will be here opportunity to visit with him even after the service is over i'd love for you to stick around no more important decision that you could ever make than to put your trust and your hope in the lord jesus and be saved eternally let's pray together